Good morning. Glad to see you all here today. We've been talking about heaven, and we've learned that it's a pretty awesome place. It's a place that's like earth with mountains and seas and cities and everything that we think of as good and fun and laughter and all of that good stuff. But it's also a place that is unbelievably better than the world that we live in. It is far beyond anything that we can imagine. I would even say it's infinitely greater than anything that, that we know on the world. We've also seen that it's a place where God will be and we will be in His presence and He will be powerful in our midst and, and He will wipe away all of our tears and everything that is bad on this earth will be gone. And, and so over the last five weeks we've talked uh, about how great of a place heaven is and hopefully by now you know that it really will be an awesome, glorious, wonderful place. Philippians 3.20 says this, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a big deal, what Paul says in the book of Philippians. It's a, it's a, it's a really big deal that he's saying, look, your citizenship right now, currently, in the present situation that you live in, is actually in heaven, the place that we've been talking about for five weeks. And so Paul looks at his readers and he writes this down for him and he says, Hey, you are no longer citizens of earth. You are now citizens of heaven if you have given your lives to Jesus and have become Christians. Now here's what's really fascinating about this. We could sit here all day and, and just talk about what it means to be a citizen of heaven and, and the implications of that and the importance of that and all of those things. But, but let me just turn your attention to Hebrews 11:13 through 16. Before I read it to you, let me just give you a little background information. The entire chapter of Hebrews is a chapter about the faith of some really great men. It is about the faith of people like Moses who who led the Israelite nation out of Egypt and into a desert and they crossed the Red Sea. And it's about the faith of guys like Abraham who who said, Hey, God, I'm going to leave and go wherever you want me to go on a whim without asking or complaining about why you would send me to a foreign land. And so the whole chapter is about these amazing Men of faith, guys that you read about in the Bible and, and we look up to them and things like that. And, and then you read in the midst of this entire chapter about all these great men of faith in eleven thirteen through 16, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had an opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. You read the chapter of Hebrews 11 and, and you see all these great guys. And right there in the midst of it, you see, I believe, the mindset that these men had. A mindset that if we are going to be great people of faith, people that serve and live for God and live out the lives that God has called us to live, then we are going to be people who have a similar mindset to these men. Let me just repeat a few of the phrases that demonstrate their mindset from that passage. They are looking for a country of their own. You see, these men recognize that earth 
was no longer because they were God-fearing people. It was no longer their place. They didn't belong here. They didn't fit in here. And so they looked for something that was their own. They longed for a better country, a heavenly one. They desperately wanted to be in the place that God was in total perfection. And then it says, admitting they were foreigners and strangers on earth. This last phrase brings us to the passage of Scripture that we want to look at today, and that's 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, if you want to open your Bibles there. And, and 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12 is a fantastic uh, passage of Scripture, and it connects with what I just read to you. And so uh, I just want to look at it today, and, and I want to take our time just processing what Peter is saying to us, the readers of it. This is what he says, 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Now look at the way that Peter begins this. He says, dear friends, and, and this word actually can be translated beloved, and so it's a pretty strong word of affection. Peter is talking to a group of churches and Christians that, that he feels strongly about. He may have helped plant these churches. He desperately wants to see them succeed. And, and so he begins this section right here, a, a difficult teaching in some ways, by saying, hey, dear friends. And here's the deal about the Bible. A lot of times, even the strongest Christians, when they approach the Bible and they begin to read it, somewhere inside of us, we think, man, what a burden it is that I have to try to live out the things that it says in this book. I mean, it's just, look at all these rules and these regulations and these things that I have to try to do. Life would just be so much easier if the Bible would just leave me alone and let me live the way that I want to live. And it's even worse for people who aren't Christians. They, they look at the Bible and they just say, man, look at that, that's just oppressive. I mean, that book is just oppressive and it, it, it just keeps people from just living the way that they want to live and, and people are brainwashed by that book. But, but here's the deal. When you read the Bible, especially the New Testament, it doesn't take long to recognize that very clearly every person who is a biblical author wanted people that were reading their books to have the best lives that they could possibly have. This theme emerges in Scripture that it's not about, hey, I want to put these rules over your head so that you'll do what I want you to do and, and live the way that I think you should live and be burdened for the rest of your life. This theme emerges. And the theme is the biblical authors loved the people that were reading their books. And part of the reason that they were writing, part of what was behind the books that they put down through the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit was that they wanted the people that they loved to live the best life that they could possibly live. And when we approach this passage today, it's one of those passages that it's like, man, it would just be so much easier if this isn't here. But for Peter, one of the guys that hung out with Jesus, he's, he's saying these things because he wants you to live the best life that you can possibly live. And so he says, dear friends, beloved, people that I love, I urge you to abstain. Now this word urge is, is a pretty strong word. It's a word that, that means to ask for earnestly, to request, to appeal, or to plead for. And so Peter is writing this book, and, and he isn't just saying, here, hey, guess what? 
here's what God told me I needed to say to you. I just let me get it out of the way so that the burden is off of me and and you can, you know, decide whether or not you want to live these things out. No big deal to me. No skin off my back. Peter's looking at these people and he's like, hey, I know what's better because I hung out with Jesus. And I desperately want you to live out the things that I know he is telling me to tell you to live out. So Peter is looking at them. He's saying, hey, I, I don't just, it's not just these rules, but, but I urge you because I love you to live out the things that I am about to say to you. And this is what he urges them. He urges them as foreigners and exiles to do some things. Now, other translations say aliens and foreigners, and uh, this definitely connects with the Hebrews passage, right? And it connects with the Philippians passage that I've already read, because what Peter is saying to these people is that they are strangers on earth because now their true citizenship is in heaven. They no longer belong here, and they should long for something better. Both of these words mean virtually the same thing. They're almost synonymous, but uh, if I could find kind of nuances in them, then uh, then these would be them. The first word kind of demonstrates the foreignness of Christians on earth. And so the Bible, as you read it, it paints this picture that, that we should be foreigners here on this planet, that our lives and the things that we root for and hope for and want and desire, they should be different than the people that we see here because we are no longer citizens of this world, but citizens of somewhere else. The second word there that gets translated foreigners or exiles is a word that, that, that references the temporariness of our lives on this planet. The Bible says, look, for a little while you'll be here and you'll suffer like everybody else, but eventually, and not really that long in the, the whole scheme of things, God will come back and He will take you to be with Him in heaven, which we now know will be a recreation of the earth that we live on. And, and so when it says the second word here, it's referencing the fact that we won't be here for very long. And so he says, foreigners and strangers are exiles, and they're kind of the same, but there's two nuances. One nuance is that we are very different than the rest of the world if we have given our lives to Jesus. And the other one is, is referencing the fact that we are not here for that long. Now, we kind of grasp the idea of, of foreigners and exiles, but we don't grasp it nearly as well as the people that Peter was writing to. See, for us, we think of, in our country, we think, well, we are a country, in a lot of ways, of, of foreigners and exiles, because people came here and we became the great melting pot, as it's referenced. And so, we have some of that in our minds, but a lot of us have just been here and and we're one country, and so we don't grasp it on a personal level. And then when we talk about aliens, we think of illegal aliens, right? And so the image that we think of and the thoughts that come to our minds is simply, you know, should we send them back or not? What do we do with people who have come into our country illegally? But for for the for the people reading the book of Peter, this was a way more personal statement. You see, Peter is writing to a group of Jewish Christians. And if you study the history of the Jewish people, you quickly find that being foreigners and exiles was not something that was strange to them at all. Very early on, at the very beginning of their nation, before they were even a nation, they were really just a family. They came to Egypt and the Egyptians took them over and they started to rule and reign over them. And eventually, they just made them into slaves. And so the Jewish people lived under the oppression as foreigners and exiles in Egypt. 
And eventually Moses, a guy I already mentioned, came along and, and God used Moses to lead these people out. And they went out into a desert and they wandered around into the desert until God gave them their own land, a land that he had promised to them. But then, after a while, they became disobedient to God and the things that he had commanded. And so God allowed for the Assyrian Empire to come in and take captive the Jewish people. And so the Jewish people went into Assyria and they lived as foreigners and exiles and eventually God said, look, I will take you back because that is your land. And after a while they became disobedient to God again and, and a group of people called the Babylonians came in and they took the Jewish people out of their, their country and they took them into Babylonia and, and there they were and they lived as foreigners and exiles again and eventually God led them back to their land. And at the time of this writing, the Roman people have taken over the land. And so the Jewish people are living in their own nation, but they are really living as foreigners and exiles in their own country. And making it even more personal to the people that Peter is writing to is this is a group of Christians who have left their land in Jerusalem because of the persecution towards Christians. And they've scattered and now they are living in different provinces in Asia to get away from persecution. And so these people fully understand what it means to be living as a foreigner somewhere else. And here's the crazy thing about Jewish people and their, their history as exiles and foreigners living in different places. They always know that God has promised that land to them. And so they know that eventually they are going to be back. And what you see in the Jewish people is that they, they do not get caught up in the culture of wherever they're living or whoever is ruling them. But they maintain their culture their values, their own set of rules. And when God takes them back to their country, they continue to have the same culture that they've had for thousands of years. You say, well, that's great. The Bible talks about that. I'm talking 1948. After Nazi Germany killed Jewish people, they received their own nation again, right? And, and people from all over, Jewish people from all over the world came back to this little nation called Israel. And what do we see? They have a similar culture to what they had way back when in the beginning of the Bible. And so when Peter looks at this group of people and says, Hey, you're foreigners and exiles because your true citizenship is in heaven. Here's what these people understand. They understand that that means living as a subculture and not giving in to the things around them, but maintaining their integrity and the rules that are theirs as Christian people and not giving in to the pressure of, of becoming just like everybody else around them. And so Peter is looking at these readers, and therefore you and I, and he's saying, look, you are strangers in this land that need to maintain your own culture, and you need to maintain your own set of guidelines and your own values, because you someday are going to go into heaven, your true home. You will return there. And this is what he says that it should look like as aliens and strangers, as Christians whose true citizenship is in heaven. He says that we should abstain from fleshly lusts. First Peter 4, if you skipped a couple of chapters ahead, 2 and 3 describes this. It says, So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out 
the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, caressing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Galatians 3, 19 through 21 has a little bit of bigger list of what the lusts of the flesh are. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envying, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And so what Peter is saying here, quite clearly, is that as citizens of heaven, we need to be people who avoid living out these things, doing these things. Now, what I want you to notice here, it's kind of big, because when we think of lusts of the flesh, traditionally, I think that Christians think of homosexuality, and Christians think of premarital sex or adultery. Those are kind of the three things that we think of. But let me just, just at the end, just list a couple of these again. How about envy? Right? Or how about dissensions or factions? Those are disagreements. Or selfish ambition. And Peter is looking at these people and he's saying, I urge you, I desperately want you to not give in to these things, these fleshly lusts. And then notice what he says next. That wage war against your soul. The soul is the part of a person, a being that, that will go on forever. That's the, the simplest definition. And so your physical body someday will die, right? We know that. But your soul will go on forever in hell or heaven, as the Bible tells us. It, it will be eternal. And Peter is saying that the fleshly lust, that bad list of things I just read and all the other stuff that we call sinful that is outside the will of God, They're waging war against your soul. They want to kill and destroy your eternal being. There's a couple kinds of people in the world. There are people who just deny the spiritual altogether, right? They don't think about the spiritual for them. They only fight the battle of the physical. You know, I'm trying to stay in shape and I'm trying to have nice things and, and I'm trying to have fun and, and have a good time in life and all of that. And, and, and there's another kind of person that, that is spiritual and says, well, I do the, I do the spiritual life for myself and it's, you know, I hope that, I do it because it's fun. I go to church on Sundays or I go to yoga or I watch Oprah or, or you know, I just, I just want my spiritual life to feel good and so I take these steps. But, but Peter takes this like to a whole different level and he says, this is what he says, he says that, that the bad things in the world, the things that are outside the will of God are waging war against your soul. I look around people and so many people are losing the war. They're losing the war because they deny the spiritual and so what's happening is is they're simply just living for the physical and and guess what Satan and your own fleshly lusts are winning the war against your soul. And I look at people that, that, that treat it like a walk in the park, like, oh, I'll try to maybe avoid sin, and if I don't, eh, it's okay, God will forgive me. And guess what? You're losing the war for your soul. We treat our spiritual lives like a walk in the park, and Peter's looking at us saying, look, I love you, and I care about you, and so I urge you to just avoid the things that are trying to come out you, and they're trying to attack you, and they're trying to destroy you, and they ultimately want you to end up in hell, and I just, please, just stop doing them. This is what you need to understand. The spiritual world is not a walk in the park. It, it is a war. 
and the war sometimes is over your very soul, the part of you that will go on forevermore. And if you are living for the physical or you are treating the spiritual like a walk in the park, then you are going to lose the war. I tell you, if you're a Christian and you never think about the spiritual life, then you're losing the war. Satan is smiling and he probably won't remind you. He's not going to make you feel guilty. He's going to let you just keep going and doing the things that you're doing, giving in to your drunkenness and your idolatries and your envy and your discord and all of those things. And he'll just let you keep going because he's winning. If you're not a Christian, and these fleshly lusts are waging war against you too, and they just want you to keep giving in to them and giving in to them and giving in to them, and, and they never want you to stop and think that maybe you might lose a war, that there is a war at all for your soul, and God is God desperately wants you to give your life to Him. Peter is saying, this is not a walk in the park. You need to prepare. Because there's a war going on for your soul every single day. So for you and I, I mean, this is, this is important, right? I mean, your physical will die. you got 100 years if you do really, really well. Eat healthier than every other American, right? Uh, if you do that, then you have 100 years on this earth, but you have eternity. And so if you're, not, if you're not preparing for battle within your soul on a daily basis, if you let your defenses down, then you will lose the battle for your soul. And I don't want that for any of you. Peter flips here and, and he says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Gentiles is, is a reference to non-Jewish people at points in the Bible. But in the book of First Peter and other places, it's actually a, a symbol for a non-Christian, somebody who hasn't given their lives to Christ. Okay, And so, uh, so this is talking about people who, who aren't Christians, uh, who would, regular people, who wouldn't call themselves followers of Jesus. And he says, so he says, keep your behavior excellent among people who aren't Christians. Now, the word for excellent, uh, comes from a Greek word that I actually remember from college, and, and I've told some of you this before, but I, I don't remember anything from my Greek classes. Uh, I, I've taken two years of it, and I, I barely remember anything. Anytime I talk about a Greek word up here, it's because I studied it for this sermon. Except for this one. Uh, because I would get bored in Greek class, probably the reason I don't remember anything from Greek class. And, and so I would write love poems in Greek. Uh, it seems cool um, at the time. And so I would sit there and I would try to write poems in Greek and use the words. And, um, and, and th- this word is an important word for every love poem. It's, it's the word kalos. It's not a very beautiful word for a love poem. Uh, but the word means good or, this is where it came in in my Greek classes, it means beautiful. And so whenever I was writing a love poem, it would include the word kalos somewhere in it because I only knew a few words that could go into a Greek love poem. And this was one of them. And so what Peter says here is not just excellent as... That's a boring word, right? What does excellence mean? That means so many different things to so many people. What Peter is saying is keep your behavior beautiful amongst people who aren't Christians. He's looking at, at Christians... Many of you are that. And he is looking at you and he is saying, not just abstain from some things, but live absolutely beautiful lives. This is, for me, a paradigm-shifting statement. I think that most Christians, most that I'm around, just think, if I can just avoid some things, 
then, oh, that's good. I did good. You know, I didn't do anything stupid this week. But Peter is, is saying to Christians, I want you to live beautiful lives. I want you to live lives that shine, that glow, that reflect the place that you're from, heaven. And, and this is an, an interesting statement that he says next. I find it fascinating. He says, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, glorify God. Now here's, here's the thing about that. The early Christian church was, was horribly misunderstood. You, you could call it a new religion. And, and it's really fascinating because, because everything that they did seemed to be misunderstood. For example, we take communion sometimes at church, right? And we talk about eating the body and the blood of Jesus. And so the early church was looked at by the Roman people as cannibals because they talked about eating body and blood. And so they were they were labeled as cannibals. The early church, uh, more than we do now, would call each other brothers and sisters. And so the people around them would look and say, hey, that brother and sister just got married. And so they were accused of incest in the early church. They were actually accused, this is just crazy to me, of, of being uh, atheists. Can you imagine the Christians being accused of atheism today? Because they didn't have a God that you could see. And so when you're around a bunch of cultures that have stone gods, and you look at this group of people... And you go, well, they don't even have a God. What kind of religion is this? And so the early church was horribly misunderstood. And I don't think that it's that different today, right? There are things that people believe about Christians that are not true. Let me give you a couple of them. Uh, one would be uh, that Christians hate gay people. Right? I mean, I, I think that there's lots of people who think that I hate gay people because I am a Christian. And so the, the world seems to think that we, we are just gay people hating group, right? I mean, that's out there, right? But let me, let me tell you the honest truth. The truth about Christians is that they don't hate gay people. We believe that the Bible says that homosexuality is wrong. But I love gay people. I've never met a gay person that I didn't like or respect. I know somebody in this church actually celebrated Thanksgiving... This year, with the homosexual couple, cooked them dinner and everything. There are people within our congregation that have homosexual family members and they love them just the same. And so there is this idea out there that we hate gay people because we are Christians. It's not true. But the world believes that about us. Here's another one. That Christians love war. Here's how the thinking seems to go. Christians are always Republicans. And so Christians all voted for George Bush. And George Bush made us go to war. And people didn't hate him for it. And so they must love war. Isn't that, you've kind of heard it, right? I mean, that, that's out there. It's this thought that people have. And it's wrong on so many levels. Like, first of all, not all Christians are Republicans. We have many Democrats in this congregation. Uh, second of all, not all Republicans, I don't think, voted for George Bush. I would go out on a limb and say not every single one, right? Third of all, George Bush didn't, in many ways, shove us into war. I mean, that's a, that's a debatable talk. And fourth of all, just because you continue to love a person when they make a political decision doesn't mean that you love the political decision that they made. And so, no, not every Christian person loves war. In fact, I would hope that, that every Christian person doesn't love war. And, and so there's these lies out there in our society about Christians like there were for the early church. And this is what Peter says. He says, your works need to be so beautiful that it outshines 
that it goes over and above the lies that the world is telling about you. Now, it's really fascinating because the second time that he uses the word beautiful, he actually adds the word works to the end. And so it's not just about what we avoid again. It's about what we do. And he's saying, look, you should do such beautiful work in this world. And then he says that the, that the non-Christian glorifies God on the day of visitation. What does that mean? That simply means that the day they come to salvation, God comes into their lives, will happen. And so here, here's the deal, and I don't like it, to be honest with you. I think this is kind of stinky. But what Peter is saying is that, is that if we will live beautiful lives, then people will give their lives to Jesus. That's a lot of pressure and a lot of weight. I like the answer, oh man, I can't believe they don't like Jesus because I'm a jerk. You know, that's so much easier. Like, oh, it's their fault. They're idiots. I mean, of course I sin, but it's Jesus they should be worshiping. That, that's, that's our answer, right? But Peter is saying, if we will abstain from immorality and we will live beautiful lives and do beautiful work, then people, partly as a result of that, will know Jesus as their Savior and they will end up in heaven with us. This is what I want you to hear today and I desperately want you to hear this and I feel like there's a war going on in, in my soul right now and in your souls because just talking to Christians here, we become so complacent. Right? I mean, we think if we're at church every Sunday... And if we live better than most of the world, then we're doing our job and it's good enough and God's probably giving us a thumbs up. But Peter is taking it to a whole different level here. He is saying you need to abstain from sexual immorality and gossip and envy and all of those things. Yeah, and we know that, right? We've been around church. Even if you haven't been around church, you know that Christians want to avoid those things. But then he's saying... Your life should be stunningly beautiful. So beautiful that no matter what the media and the world wants to say about Christians, that people look at you and they go, ah, it's got to be real. I don't care what anybody says because, because that guy loves me. That guy loves everybody he's around. There's no way that guy hates gay people because he loves everybody. And he's the nicest man I've ever been around. And... and we need to be living lives that have beautiful works in them. If we're just sitting at home saying, I'm living pretty beautiful, I'm doing good, I'm not giving in to those sins, then we are missing the boat because it's saying that we need to have beautiful works. Our works should be stunning to the world and people should look at us and go, there's no way they're bad people. I don't care what anybody says about them, there is no way. The early church seemed to have this in mind. They seem to live this out. There's a passage of Scripture in the book of Acts. It says that people were scared to join the Christians, but many were joining because they were so awesome. It's my paraphrase. It's all I had planned, but I feel like there's more. I just don't want you... To be a person that goes through life living regular. What's happening in our world today is that non-Christians are looking at Christians. There's a lot of fake Christians that they're looking at and they're saying, 
See, I told you Christians aren't that good. And then the rest of us are not living that different from them. And they're saying, what do I want to be a part of that for? And what Peter is saying is that we as citizens of heaven, a beautiful place that's perfect and filled with the presence of God, we we should live lives that reflect that. And if we will, then, then people who don't know Jesus are going to look at us and go, man, I want what they have. And so just honestly, this hasn't come out of my mouth as good as I wrote it down. Um, but I need you to hear this. If you walk out of here and you live the same life, I'm going to be so angry. I mean, that's just the truth. I want you to walk out of here with a newfound passion for living a stunningly beautiful life. And if you're, if you're not a Christian, and, and I just, I'm sorry to you that we look like everybody else because our God has not told us to live that way. Our God has told us to live lives that are beyond anything that anybody can possibly live. I, I should not be recognizable to this world because I am not a citizen of this world. I am a citizen of a place that is far beyond anything that this world can possibly imagine. And so what I what I just I want you to leave here and I, I just I want you to walk out of here and I want you to be convicted first. I mean I hope you're convicted right now. I mean, how many beautiful works did you do last week? How many works did you do that a non-Christian would have looked at and said, wow, nobody would have done that if they didn't really believe in that Jesus guy. I want you to walk out of these doors today and think, man, I am not living beautifully enough. Unless you are, then thumbs up. I want you to walk out and say, this is, I can be more beautiful. I can be just better. I can live a life where people look at me and go, they're different. How many people said you're different this week? And that's what I want from you, and, and that's what I want from our church. I want our church to be full of people that just are are beautiful. Truth is, for so many years in this country, we've cared more about how we dress when we come to church than how beautiful our lives are, haven't we? And isn't that what got the church into trouble? We worry more about how we dress and more about how we sound and more about how nice our building is than we do about how beautiful our lives are. And so we look around and and the world's going to hell and it's our fault. It's our fault because we've lived like them. And they're looking at us and saying, what does it matter? What does it matter? But if we will live beautiful lives that are just far and beyond. I'm not talking like I'm a little better than somebody else. I'm talking about lives that just glow because people look at us and they absolutely know that we are different. We're not looking at them and saying, I'm different, I'm better than you. We're saying, I'm going to live this way and you're going to see that I'm better because I love Jesus. That's what the world needs from us. It doesn't need a new program. It doesn't need us coming up with a better plan. It needs us being serious about what God has called us to do. And it needs us being beautiful because the world is ugly. And there's too many Christians contributing to the ugliness of this planet. And so for us, for you and I, people that go to this church, but more importantly, people who love Jesus, we need to live beautifully. I need to live beautifully. 
It's not about getting alone in our room and hanging on and saying, God, oh, I hope that I do better than everybody else. It's about saying, I'm going to just live beautifully. And you'll mess up. You will. And you'll do things that aren't that beautiful. But if you are shooting for beauty, then some mistakes are going to be covered up. But right now, we're shooting for okay. We're shooting for a kind of good life. And then when we mess up, it's just glaringly obvious. And so, so my hope for you and for I, me, is that we will just, we will just want to be beautiful. This world needs us to be beautiful. I mean, it needs us to be beautiful. That's God's plan. God's plan for, for getting other people into heaven is you living beautiful and then telling them why. And so I hope as you go out this week and for the rest of your lives, that's what I want, is that, that you, me, we will be beautiful. Remove the sin. That's a very important part. I mean, if you're like, I'm going to live beautiful, but I'm going to get drunk tonight, that's not going to work. Or I'm going to live beautiful, but, but I'm not going to be worried about whether or not I'm connected to the people in my church, that's not going to work. If you're like, I'm going to live beautiful, but I'm going to be a jerk to everybody, that's not going to work, right? That can't happen. They don't go together. So remove the sin, but don't stop there. Live lives full of beautiful work. That is what Peter is saying to us. I'm going to say a prayer. Lord, oh, we've failed you in this country as Christians, God, for too long. Lord, we talk to you about revival, some of us do, and, and seeing this world be changed, God. This country start to live for you again, Lord. And But yeah, we just live like... Like, it doesn't matter. I mean, we might pray it, we might sing it, we might talk about it in church, but then we just live, God, like a normal person. I pray that that would stop, Lord, and I pray for everybody here, God. God there's, some, uh, there's some people who really love you here, Lord, but, but I think just our culture has been a culture of, of just mediocrity. In fact, God... It's just that way in every aspect of life. I mean, our country just teaches people to, to shoot for mediocre. I mean, get good enough grades and be a good enough spouse and do good enough at work. But Lord, I pray that we would no longer give in to that God. I pray that we would instead, God, live lives that reflect your culture the culture of heaven convicted of that god but i'm talking about just our normal lives that look like everybody else's lord and i pray you convict us of that and you would help us to make changes lord you would help us lord to to just live beautiful and have beautiful work god Lord, I mean, we can look around and we can see the beautiful work that Christians have done, and I know the results are amazing, God. But, Lord, I pray for us, Lord, that we would do beautiful work. Let us be a church that's beautiful, full of individuals who live beautifully. God, if anybody here doesn't know you as their Savior, Lord, I pray that, God, just right now as they, as they think about this sermon, that they would realize, God, that the lives of Christians 
haven't reflected you the way that they should. God, I pray that, that, that they would forgive us and they would turn their eyes to you and not blame you for our sins, God. I love you, Father, and I pray these things in your name. Amen.